0: Welcome once again my friends to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor coming to you from my home here in Stockholm for the last 24 years. You are listening to the podcast for the 70 odd million Irish people or people of Irish extraction around the globe. This week we have a fascinating chat for you with somebody that I've known for many, many years, an incredible musician, really interesting character. ...from Walkinstown in Dublin. We shall get to him very, very shortly. Now living in Arizona, in the desert, and delighted with himself. And he has new music on the way, but as I say, we'll get to that in a second. Before we get into the conversation with Keith Walker, the former drummer from Power of Dreams... ...and a man who has played guitar and bass and sung and made electronic music and everything else since then... Uh, ...in a career spanning and God Almighty, must be 30, 35 years in the music industry. Before we get into that, I just want to remind you to keep following me on social media... at on instagram at philip o'connor on twitter if you can support the podcast please go to patreon.com forward slash Error man in stockholm throw in a five a month there right because uh, it helps me to sort of keep the lights on here but most importantly please please share the podcast right so if you're keith walker if you're a friend of keith walker if you're his brother craig if you're mick lennox who used to play the bass in power of dreams anybody who's listening just for the first time Pop this out on your Instagram story or on your Twitter or your Facebook or LinkedIn or wherever you see fit and uh, just tell people you'll listen to it, you enjoyed enjoy the conversation, great crack with the two boys etc etc because the more people that you help me to reach the quicker we will reach those 70 million Irish around the world and they will all know the joys of having a podcast just for them, just for them lads. Um, God I'm trying to remember the first time I met Keith Walker it's one of the questions I asked him early in the interview as well but I'd say he was probably about 14 or 15 years of age playing in the Bagot Inn up on Bagot Street there used to be a famous Irish music pub there in Dublin and you would have bands there seven nights a week and I think a band called Full Circle used to play whatever they used to play on Saturday nights but other than that it was an awful lot of indie bands it was an awful lot of, and Ireland was absolutely thriving at that time as a uh, a&R executives came over from London looking for the next U2, basically. And, you know, I played a lot of music around that time. That was how I got to know Keith and his, bro- his elder brother, Craig, who was the songwriter. Uh, but they took off and they signed a deal with Polygram. he will go through that entire story and that kind of thing and literally made it big in Japan. Here's a young fellow who, at the age of 15, 16, 17, was touring the world. You know, it was an incredible story at the time. And in those situations, you'll often think that sort of, you know, artists and musicians and that kind of thing can be very, very competitive. It's all, it's not all sort of loveies and, oh Jesus, I'm delighted for you, you got that deal. There can be an awful lot of bitterness in that. But I can never remember, certainly not from my side or from anybody I knew, any sort of bitterness towards Keith and Craig and Mick and Robbie and the lads who were playing in the band there and Ian Olney who came in and played guitar later on. There was a great sense of goodwill towards them and a willingness for them to succeed. And part of it was down to, ...the fact that these were young lads... ...who are teenage lads like ourselves... ...and we just wanted... ...Jesus, anybody you know who booted the door in... ...so that the rest of us might follow... Uh, ...would have been a fantastic thing for us to have, you know. So they went off to London... ...as you'll hear Keith speak about... ...in the early part of this interview... ...and they made an EP called... ...A Little Piece of God... And around that time as well, you didn't talk a whole lot about this, these kinds of things in the late 80s, about you know the influence that the church still had in our society then. We look back now and we think, oh yeah, we were all you know too big for our boots and nobody cared what the priest. It's not exactly true, you know. So they made the EP called The Little Piece of God, which was actually named, I think, after a column by Father Brian Darcy in the Sunday World, if I remember rightly. Ask our granddad, he'll know. And uh, yeah, it went from there and they became hugely successful around the world. And then, like all of these things, nothing lasts forever. And it was just it was brilliant to catch up with him. He's somebody... That thanks to Facebook and social media, I've been able to sort of rediscover a lot of these people that I would have known in Dublin, grown up. And like myself, and like yourself, and like many people who are going to be listening to this. Uh, he lives in somewhere completely different now, from Walkinstown to Arizona, where he's living and leading a very, very successful life there. And the reason I got in touch with him and brought him on around now is because he has a new band, or he has new music coming out uh, with one of his bands. And we shall finish on a track from them. But um, let's get into the conversation, shall we? This is Keith Walker from Walkinstown, former drummer with Power of Dreams talking about uh, their debut album Immigrants, Emigrants of Me and all the great things that went on and that brought him to where he is today 30 odd years later. Uh, let's kick off, why don't we, with the title track from that EP A Little piece of God. Here's a little taste of that before we get into the conversation with Keith.
1: We go to the and we to the people As they all come in. they all go out Segregations with the conversations But they live in town we live and die,
0: I'm trying to remember, when was the first time? How old were you when you left Ireland for the first time because of music? Were you 15 at that point?
2: Yeah, uh, I would have been 15, yeah. Uh, summer of 1988? 88? 89. Summer of 89, I was 15, yeah. Um, and that was recording of uh, a little piece of God EP in London uh, for Keith Cullen's Satanta Records. Uh, which we recorded at Elephant Studios uh, with Sean O'Neill from The Undertones producing. Uh, That was my first uh, trip outside of Ireland unchaperoned uh, by a parent. Uh, So Craig was the official chaperone at his uh, 17. He would have been 17. He would have just turned 18, actually. So he was kind of illegal. Legal guardian, so to speak. But yeah, that was, uh, you know, when I think about that, it's quite uh, bizarre, uh, you know, in this uh, day and age to uh, think of just how young, personally, I was. Uh, but, you know, all of Power Dreams at that point were very young, obviously. But 15 is a young age, for sure. And to kind of be uh, heading off uh, to record in London was quite a thrill uh, for for myself. It really was. It was incredible. Um, and in fact, to the UK, I'd only ever been um, with my uh, with my parents to visit family in Northampton. My father's side has a lot of family in the north of England and Northampton, particularly. So I'd only ever been over with them as a child. Uh, I'd never been to London, uh, but when we did uh, arrive in Heathrow and took the tube it became uh, very apparent quickly just how uh, massive london was um it was incredible um just to see how vast it was very intimidating obviously uh three young guys on a tube with bits and pieces of their equipment looking like they probably just stole it um you know so we we were just really just kind of thrown into it as as does uh, be the case for most bands and young uh, dreamers so to speak you know Mm -hmm. but yeah it was incredible to uh, have the opportunity at such a young age to get on a a plane and a train and then go to a recording studio and make make a record not just a demo or a cd or an mp3 or a digital download but an actual record a vinyl record which was Still, very much it was kind of the tail end of vinyl, really at that period. But it was still very popular. CD was king uh, already at that point. It's it felt like, you know, towards the end of the eighties, nineteen eighty nine. That CDs were just really everywhere. But the fact that we were making a record still kind of you know was super um, important to us because we grew up with vinyl and cassettes. So, you know, going over to make a record and knowing that we were going to record something that was going to actually, you know, end up on vinyl was a, was quite the thrill, of course. But yeah, so we recorded that EP with Sean O'Neill. We stayed with Keith Cullen at his squat in um, oh, Camberwell, I think, is where it was. Um, and it just exposed us to um, to a whole new kind of existence, really. I mean, the idea of... Our label guy, Keith Cullen, who was probably in his early 20s at that point, and, you know, he lived in a squat. He lived, And I mean, I didn't say he lived in a squat. He wasn't living in some, like, filthy, you know, cesspool. It was like a really, really nice apartment that he had decorated really well. And we were completely, you know, uh, gobsmacked at, like, how, how, is, this, how is this a, a squat? It's really nice, it's furnished, it's clean, it, you've, got a lot, you've got a key for the door, you know, these kinds of things. So, you know, that in itself was like incredibly uh, educational. Um, but yeah, we spent spent a couple of days with Keith. We recorded the uh, EP with Sean O'Neill at the helm, who of course, uh, the guitar player for the undertones and chief songwriter, uh, who Keith brought on board. Um, and Sean was somewhat of a fan from hearing some of the demos. Uh, but of course, he became a real fan when we got into the studio and we started to make a noise and he could tell that we could play. Uh, he was extremely um, excited at our energy, that useful energy, which, you know, as I've gotten older, it's so easy to identify when uh, the energy exists and, uh, it's beautiful sometimes, you know, that energy, it really is. It's like, it's just a ball that just pulsates, you know, yeah. and that's what pod were at that age. We were our own little son, just pulsating, you know, mm. and we were ready to explode. And I think anybody that got around the band at that stage could tell that, wow, these guys are about to pop, you know, mm. um, and definitely Sean O'Neill was one of the first, in terms of, you know, a producer, engineer, but in his particular role a producer, um, I think he really was one of the first that got a real kind of eyeball out on that and was like, oh my God, these guys are just ready to, to do something. And, and I think he really got excited by that energy himself, reminded him a lot of his own Beginnings uh, with the undertones. And of course, I think we all get reminded of our own beginnings from time to time. And there's something very endearing about that that draws us in. And, you know, it either excites us or it, you know, angers us, (laughs) uh, depending. But, you know, uh, with Sean, he was very excited. And then obviously that energy transferred back to us. And there's just really exciting energy in that studio for a few days uh, as we captured our first uh, record, A Little Piece of God. Um, a four track EP Uh, of course then we came back to Ireland back to the normal summer uh, in, in Dublin, sunny Dublin um On school, how, how was
0: that, Keith? Because you're 15 years old, your parents allowed mm-hmm. you to go to London. Your day, you're recording with your brother, Keith Cullen and and O'Neill. They must have seemed like they were ancient, and they were just in their early twenties. You've tasted this life of being a recording artist. You know your record is coming out, and yet at 15, you find yourself back in Walkinstown for a summer like every other.
2: Of course, absolutely, uh, it was uh, it was very interesting to to you know. To go from uh, you know, a few days of feeling like something incredible was happening uh, with our little band. And then going back to doing the dishes and mowing the lawn and trying to make a few quid to, you know, just kind of as you do, hustle in in the summer. Um and of course, I mean, you know, when we went back, we were we're very excited and there was a bit of a bit of excitement in certain circles that we had been to the UK to record and you know we did some more shows over the summer and the anticipation to uh, hear the record was building amongst our little fan base and our friends and and even ourselves because these were the days where it wasn't like let me just get a quick mix on that an MP3 and email it over to you, you can give me some notes and we'll do whatever, this was in the days of sit, sit back and when it's ready, it's ready and it'll arrive in the post, you know. Um, so the anticipation was very high to hear what had happened and what we'd done because we didn't leave with a cassette or anything. We didn't leave with any, you know, other than, wow, this sounds great in the studio and these big speakers. So I think it was probably about six weeks or so before we actually received maybe more, I think it was, Quite close to the the release date, that we received a copy of the vinyl, um, which was just just a really uh, a monumental experience for all of us. Really, just for that to arrive, but we sat in my mom's living room and opened it, and just oh, it was just like it was like uh, it was like that suitcase in Pulp Fiction, you know, where they open it and the gold. <laughs>
0: And the glow right. flows off it, yeah.
2: The glow it's just it how that glow and it really did. It's like it was special, you know. So we popped it on the old uh turntable and just sat back and listened to the crackling, and then it just kicked in and it was beautiful, you know. Um and I think really, you know, when I heard it, I was like, Wow, this is really good. Um, I think um people are gonna like it. And I was just very um proud of the fact that we did what we did, even if we'd never done anything else after that. I think, you know, in our own minds, we had achieved so much in that one act of, you know, being brought to London on somebody else's dime uh, to record uh, a record. Um, I think that, you know, if that, if it all had went away at that point, it would have been, well, you know what? At least we did that and it was amazing. And look, we've got this record but obviously, that was really just the beginning, you know. Because when the record was released, it it receives a lot of um, a lot of praise in the British press, in the weeklies uh, at the time. Obviously, the enemies, your Melody Makers and Sounds, uh, all of which I think enemy are doing the only existing one now. But but those magazines were really they got behind it and got a couple of single of the weeks and. Uh, a lot of positive press and obviously that was just the beginning then of the you know power dream story in terms of you know us becoming uh a, a sought after act by by what, what what seems like every record label in the world at the time had sent a representative to dublin to see us you know mm. based on that record that record came out um I think Keith released a thousand or maybe a thousand copies. Uh, and it just was really, it just went off, you know. Uh, and then, of course, every record label, my mom's phone number was on the back of address and phone number on the back of the record. So uh, everybody was calling my mother's house, um, record labels from all over the world, trying to get some kind of indication of how they can come to Dublin to meet us, to see us. Um, so it was quite, it was quite, uh, quite strange really, um, that, you know, cause we had had management, but they had dipped out just before the record. And so when the record came out, uh, then it was all, all of the interest was being filtered to my mom's phone. Um, so we had to then revisit the management that we had had prior to making the record and say, look, we need some help here. we got like all these labels. So sure enough, as soon as there was uh, interest mm-hmm. and uh, something going on, of course, they wanted to get back involved. Um, so yeah, so they, they then handled the traffic of these labels and orchestrated the, um, the meetings and the, the rehearsals and the gigs, you know, for us to, present pod to uh the A and R uh that were there. So we 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 did a bunch of rehearsals uh midweeks. My mom had picked me up from uh because we had started back school, you know. School mm-hmm. was back in session. The record had come out in September. So my mom was picking me up early from school. I was getting out early at noon to go into the city center to, to a rehearsal space uh where there would be four-hour session booked with you know eight A&R guys getting 30 minutes each with the band and and this went on for for a while Uh, and we'd be going out to dinners and lunches and I'd be in my school uniform at (laughs) these dinners and these guys would be looking at me going are you are you in school or what's going on I'm I'm like what do you think I'm in school I'm I you know I think I turned 16 now because my birthday was September. But yeah, I mean, so, you know, we're sitting in these fancy restaurants with these guys like blabbing on about whatever. And I'm like, you know, I'm 16 and I wasn't exactly like, you know, um, worldly uh, traveled at that point. I was just like a regular 16 year old. Craig would have been 18 or a was 17. So, you know, I can't imagine I would love to revisit one of those conversations <laughs> Uh, with these a guys, you know, and kind of like, what the hell were they talking to me about, you know, um, other than, of course, music, like, you know what I mean, because that was our passion. So, I mean, we weren't talking about world events, obviously, mm. uh, but I mean, you know, we were very much uh, a hot commodity for that period. Mm. Uh, and it was quite bizarre, uh, the circumstances of, you know, being picked up from school. Mm. Uh, I hated school. So being picked up from school was a real treat to go into the city to play my drums and then to go to a nice lunch and then us repeat that for a few weeks and then um and then the offers solid offers start coming in and it it, be, it became a it became a bit of a bidding war with a couple of a couple of the labels and at the end of the day uh, the label that Power James went with was Polydor Records no idea why that was it wasn't anything to do with me. I had no idea really about record labels, and I don't think anybody did, to be honest with you, and if they tell you they did, they're full of shit, Uh, because none of us did. Uh, We were just kind of like, you know, I don't know what Craig was... Well, Craig was the main songwriter, so his relationship with management and and the record labels changed very quickly, right? It went from three of us to, you know, who's the songwriter? Where's the songwriter? (laughs) Uh, And, you know, I mean, I'd never really... I don't think anyone's ever reconsidered really considered that 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 was a thing you know
0: mm-hmm. I mean not,
2: not that that was a thing but that behaviour would change considerably around the songwriter uh, versus the way it was prior but anyhow
0: So was there a big shift Keith in the power dynamic then because Craig is your brother. He's two years older than you. He's the lead singer. He plays guitar in the band. There's Mick Lennox, the bass player. And then you had Robbie Callan, who used to come in and and play guitar as well. But Robbie was adamant that he wanted to be his own man. He didn't want to be part of the band, but he wanted to to help you guys out. Did you find that all of a sudden, all these people who wanted meetings with you now just wanted to talk to Craig, that they weren't interested in what you had to say anymore?
2: Well, I don't think they were ever interested in what I had to say. Um, (laughs) That's harsh. (laughs) But they definitely fucking got to hear what I fucking played and they heard it loud and clear. Um So, you know, my talking was done through my drums. But I mean, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, in the world of music, you know, there is the world of the music business and there is a business. So did, did, did the energy shift? I mean, to be honest with you, uh, you know, DJ and our guys. Were, were, were friendly and nice, and I think that they were quite kind of intrigued at just basically the bizarreness of a situation where you're dealing with such young kids where typically, I think, you know, the age... You know, this was late 90s or 80s, I should say, and I think a lot of the A&R guys that we would have dealt with would have been... I don't think any of them were dealing with 15, 16, 17-year-olds. You know what I mean? Mm. So I think for them, I think they were kind of probably how does this work, you know? Uh, but in terms of the attention being shifted and Craig becoming more of the uh, focal, I think that that's very understandable. I think it's fair. Uh, I don't, there was never any resentment about, oh, why are you getting, I mean, you know what I mean? I, I, I've never had any issue with respect for one's role, you know? Uh, And I think Craig uh, was an, an incredible songwriter at a very young age and I think that I think it was difficult for Craig to handle the attention and to kind of process that more than anything. I don't think my, uh, you know, understanding of it was as confusing as it was for Craig. Uh, Because really Craig, I think, you know, Craig, I grew up with Craig, obviously he's my brother. I shared a bedroom with him. I mean, I know Craig very well. and, And I know that, you know, Craig, was extremely shy uh, and very much was not a very socially uh socially adapt uh teenager i'm not saying he was hiding away in the corner but he's a quiet type right um at least he was back then and i was kind of the guy that was that would go out and try to round up people for a band and do all that i was the, the one that was a little bit more outgoing you know and mm. So I was kind of the one that would kind of I could see that Craig was in the bedroom writing these songs and he was doing great and I was like okay I'm gonna go and do this then and I'll find somebody to do that and I'll make a poster or whatever you know um so but 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 he put his time in he put his time into his writing he spent a lot of time in, in his bedroom with his guitar and I think then that you know when the attention was on him that. I think he liked it, but I don't think it was necessarily, I mean, it definitely wasn't why he was in it. Mm. Looking for people to put a microphone in his face and start asking him questions. Um, But I think that he likes the idea that, that of course there was recognition and that he was getting recognition. And with that recognition, like you stated, there was power, Uh, albeit within a small universe but he was the one in that with the power and i think that at a young age that can go either way you know that can that can be a great benefit or that can be a real achilles you know Mm. Um, and i i don't really know how to you know gauge whether or not everything was handled in a way i mean you know, Craig was um, writing songs that like, you know, 25 year olds weren't writing, you know, mm. and he only had been writing these songs at 17. So in his own sense, a very mature guy, um, but in some senses, not so much, you know, mm. and that's just, that's just part of the course, really. I mean, that's the, that's the human thing, you know, mm. uh, But I was never I was never upset about anything related to that. I mean, I understand it, you know, I was just proud of the fact that, you know, I was there. I was in it. I was part of it, you know, Um, and I was having a great time loving it. Um, But yeah, we did. We signed to Polydor. um, And like I said, why? I think I think Craig favored some of the acts for sure, I think the jam oh, the jam,
0: yeah, the jam was one of those ones he said they were on the same label he thought, okay, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me,
2: for sure, yeah, and I think you know that that makes sense, yeah, I mean you gotta understand um obviously in that time, information wasn't really everywhere like it is now, so you couldn't just kind of access your phone and within ten minutes be like extremely well-knowledged on there uh, well-versed on like you know record labels the do's and don'ts mm. you know it was really uh we were hitting that ball blindly into the abyss you know uh <laughs> to, and uh, and i think that's what we did but uh so yeah we signed with polydor for the record side of things and then we signed with cbs uh which subsequently became sony uh for the publishing side of our um deal so so yeah by by December 89 it was all wrapped up in terms of the bidding war had ended the craziness of rehearsals, the gigging, the endless meeting of like people that were just asking like redundant questions and it all come to an end and uh, we'd signed and um, it was beautiful. Um, it felt very uh, felt very uh, special felt liberating it was around the holidays I mean it was like it was glorious. For want of a better word, you know, it certainly was Christmas. It was one of the best Christmases uh, I ever uh, remember. In all fair, other than you know, being five or six, getting my first little plastic drum set, you know, <laughs> uh, but it really was because that that particular Christmas we we went, you know, we went musical instrument shopping uh, with our with our freshly uh, cashed advance and uh, stocked up on on goodies for. Uh, <laughs> the coming year you know and uh it was it was incredible um but that was it that was that was that kind of journey from you know my mom's garden shed to um uh, to the underground to the bag in to McGonagalls all those all those you know little micro journeys had brought us to this one one place where we were now like a, an act that was uh, poised for the world stage and uh, all of that. So it was great. Um, and, you know, back to your question of power shifting in bands. And it's a real thing, as we are aware. I don't think the general public perhaps are aware that, you know, within bands, the dynamics of power and uh, writing can can really affect uh, the longevity and the lifespan of bands. And it really does. And I think we see it time after time after time. Where, you know, the greatest of bands implode uh, as a result of that and can do. And I remember the first kind of uh, indication that, that that's really a thing uh, was when we were uh, with, uh, we had a meeting with uh, Ozzy Kilkenny, who was uh, an accountant mm. in Ireland. And he had notoriety as, you know, being U2's accountant and, and whatnot. So we went to meet with him. And he advised, you know, that, you know, the splits can be um, very important in in the future of the band, and how we choose to do that would certainly have a lasting effect. Uh, And he was right in a lot of ways. Um, but I never, like I said, and again, not to keep hashing it out, but yeah, I really believe that if you're writing songs and it's craft and it's an art and it's a gift and they don't just fall from the sky and they don't just, you know, you got to work at it. And it's, it's, you know, and if that's what you're doing, and you're bringing that to the table, then you should be rewarded, you know, mm. um, because there's. I don't know, it, it's, it's, it can be a Pandora's box, right? That whole thing. Uh, because obviously in a band environment, it's different to, let's say, a singer-songwriter who has a collection of songs, gets a deal, and then drafts in musicians to play the them songs. And that's a more calculated format of doing it. Nobody is misunderstanding the guidelines and how mm. it works very clear but then you have a band who have been hustling and bustling for a couple of years together everybody feels like they're shoveling the same shit day in day out but then along comes you know a record label and has a big check and it's like this is for you this is for you and this big one's for you so i mean i don't know i mean how does how, how does anybody deal with that do they is there disgruntledness between some people because of that possibly perhaps nobody is um required to uh stick around you know um but again like i say you know it's all about diplomacy at that point i think you know what i mean relationships and whatnot i think at the end of the day if you understand your role and if you understand what you're bringing and you, and if you're getting rewarded for what you're doing on a personal, on a monetary level, then yeah, everything is golden, you know, mm-hmm. but everybody's different and everybody has a different take on what they feel is fair and unfair. Mm-hmm. For me, the whole pod thing was great. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I never, I, I, I was compensated for what I did, you know, and, uh, what I brought to pod was, was valued, you know, mm. uh, I wasn't writing songs at that point, contributing to arrangements and, 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 and stuff like that, you know? So my role was, was valued. And, you know, I brought the energy, I brought the drums. I knew what I needed to do. I mm. wasn't trying anything. I wasn't, you know, uh, there was no complications. I was in my lane and that's where I was. And that's where I should have been, you know?
0: Well the um, thing about what, what you the way you used to play though, because I remember I'd like I can I can hear you now. Nobody has to turn on a stereo for me to know when Keith Walker's playing the drums, because you played in quite a unique way. And it was an integral part of the sound. But When all of this was going on, right, 16, you signed for Polydor, then Immigrants, Emigrants and Me, the debut album comes out, does huge things. All of a sudden, you're touring the world at 17, 18, 19. You mentioned that the first time in London at 15, you found it intimidating. Did you enjoy that time? Did you enjoy being like literally big in Japan? Did you enjoy all those experiences that you had or did it just sort of pass you by because it happened so quick?
2: Uh, no I, I mean it, it it was quick for sure, I mean, you know, all in, I think we kind of did our thing in the space of about four years, um five max, I think, so did I enjoy um I will be very honest with you uh, i don't um I don't like the idea of being uh for want of a better word, famous um and you know our dreams were experiencing that on a, on a quite minor level let's be very clear about that but when we did go to certain markets such as japan the band were huge um so there was a little bit more of uh a kind of sense of what that would look like um to be famous you know to be start after for people to chase you around around literally arrive at an airport, three, 400 girls and with, with signs and that kind of thing. I don't like that at all. Uh, I, I, I think um, I was never comfortable with it. Uh, I'm not comfortable with people approaching me, talking to me about music, uh, about my music, as much as I appreciate and respect it. And you know, I'm not, I'm not super. I'm not the guy. I don't know what it is. I'm a people person for sure. I just don't really, I'm just not comfortable with that. Mm. I I wasn't comfortable with that, I should say. Um, And that was like anywhere I would go. I would, people, you know, were looking for signed records or asking questions. I don't know. It was never about that for me. I mean, I was never interested in people knowing and you, you know what I mean? Uh, some people are really like, oh, look at me, let's go, rock and roll, you know? Uh, it wasn't really like that for me, and it never has been. It, it was always about just wanting to play music. Now, of course, getting to travel and experience all of the things is incredible. Um, But, yeah, I'm not a fan of being, like, you know, approached mm. like that. Uh, it... And I people can take that whatever you know sometimes that can be perceived as being rude um but you know i don't know i think we all handle those things the way we handle them but i'm still quite like that as a person Mm. you know if i walk into a room or whatever where i don't know anybody i'm i'm not the guy right i'm not the guy in the middle now all of a sudden pouring champagne for everybody i'm just not that guy Mm. and i am a you know i'm i'm a more of a you know, I'll talk to you all day if, 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 if I like you, you know, yeah. um, and I, you know, it's, I don't want that to come across as like, you know, oh, I'm pick and choosy about who I want to talk to, but, but, you know, the whole idea of like, you know, um, of being popular in like, you know, far-flung places when you, you know, first in Japan was, um, it was bizarre. Right. Cause again, a time when you can't gauge, uh, anything because the internet didn't exist right so we didn't really know what to expect or anticipate so you know yeah it was wild it was bizarre it was cool but not something that turned me on in any way shape or form no
0: when when that sort of four year whirlwind period you know a little piece of god immigrants immigrants and me you made other records you as i say you toured the world many times over played some huge gigs when that started to come to an end keith or just after it did come to an end and you realized that power of dreams wasn't going to last forever did you find it difficult then to readjust how did you deal with that because all of this had happened to you and you were still very very young when this four or five year period was coming to an end
2: Pretty much, yeah. I, um, yeah, I was like still in my 20s, really, as we were approaching, I was like, you know, 2021. 20, I think pods were done but the time I was 21, 22. Um, it was disappointing. Uh, it was disappointing um, that we didn't quite achieve what really so many anticipated and even ourselves and myself because i'm quite a competitive person i always have been um and i really i really believed after immigrants after i heard immigrants for the first time the final mixes i was i was really i was really blown away by what we had done and i really thought anything was possible for this band at that point then you know um, and it was begin- it was really beginning to do that for immigrants, you know, there was no hit single on immigrants. Um, and that really is what we're looking at, is that there wasn't a breakout single. There was great media attention, accolades all over the world, a really well received album. But there wasn't a hit single. Right, And a hit single means everything in the world of music. Um, because a hit single lasts forever forever, to a degree Mm. Um, and you know with Power of Dreams we didn't have that one that just set the world on fire you know Um, and I don't know why that was I have my personal you know kind of ideas the wrong single you know kind of basically we didn't release the one single in my opinion if we had released uh, the single Stay as our first single, I think the trajectory of the band would have been very different. Um, but again, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, we know all, I know all of this now, but, you know, at the time, uh, you know, but anyway, uh, so there wasn't a hit single, right? But there was a great record. There was a lot of touring. The band had become popular. So, you know, at that point, you're like, okay, so what's next? Um and then, of course, record company shifts. You know, people get moved around. People have signed you are no longer there, this, that, and the other. The world changes very quickly. Uh, taste changes very quickly. All of the things combined are coming up. Grunge is now what everybody's into. Nirvana, I remember we were making our second album and I was recording the drums in Bath, at Moles' uh, studio, and uh, Nevermind came out. And we, went down to Tower Records and we bought the album and we brought it back and we put it on the speakers in, in the studio and it just fucking destroyed my brain. I was like, oh my God, what the fuck is this? I mean, I'm sorry for my swearing, but I it was just overwhelming that record, just how incredible it was. And I was like, I remember we were making to have a common sense and I was in the middle of my drum uh, drumming um, parts and and I, and I just I just kind of said to myself, I was like, I don't know what we're doing here. I don't know what what we're making this record for, uh, because this is the record of now. This is the sound of 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 the world right now. This is the sound of the use of this of this world. This is the sound that the kids are fucking in love with. And I get it. I'm in love with it, you know. Um. So you know, I mean, you're making a record that is—I mean—to have a common sense is a great record. It's it's so. It's so deep, and there's so many layers to that record. Like it, it's an incredible record, but it wasn't a record that like the world was waiting for because the world had fallen in love with Nirvana and grunge. So what Power of Dreams was doing was, was very much in a niche. Uh, that was going to serve a certain population while the rest of it were just, you know, they just wanted more rock and grunge records. And and that's just the movement. So, you know, timing is everything, right? In life, it really is. It's it's everything. And timing went against Power Dreams, you know. Mm -hmm. And we weren't followers. It wasn't time for Power Dreams to make a grunge record. Or well, you know, I mean, it wasn't time for Power Dreams to become a Manchester band, or you know, we never followed trends. I mean, in the beginning, I think you could say that we were influenced strongly by certain bands, and that was obvious. But, but, um, but no, we didn't switch and pivot and kind of go, okay, we're going this direction. Or we couldn't do, um stay true to our vision of what we we're trying to do. And uh, we stuck with that, but to how to how it common sense is an incredible record. It just wasn't, uh, the timing was off.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, to answer your question, how did I feel when things were starting to wind down? Well, obviously there's a road to, uh, you know, to that. And that road is paved with, you know, um, with, with, you know, with decisions that may be the right or wrong ones. Um, but ultimately you can't you can't compete with a movement like grunge you know you yeah. just have to kind of and uh, that's really what you know what happened uh, in my humble opinion is that you know the shifts of cultural popularity are ones that really you know they 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 uh, at least uh, then when they were apparent um I'm not sure that cultural shifts are something that I'm privy to anymore at my age, um, but I certainly was aware of them back then. Um, but I, you know, as as things started to wind down, the touring became less, and you know, towards you know, at this point, both Craig and Ian are guitar player uh, for that record, hell, and subsequently for the rest. Um, had relocated permanently to London. Now, while, you know, myself and Mick, our bass player, had, you know, always kind of traveled back and forth. And and we lived there on and off for years, too. But when Craig and Ian had permanently taken uh, residence in, in the UK and things were winding down, Polydor were gone. So finances were tight. And trying to kind of go back to being a band, trying to hustle it, just wasn't very appealing to me, personally. Um, So my interest in wanting to relocate to the UK wasn't, wasn't all what it was. Already in that four years, I had a certain sense of bitterness towards music to a degree, uh, bitterness towards uh, the decisions that were made that had affected me and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean... I was a little upset. <laughs> um, it wasn't exactly my my plan, uh, but again, that was the first indication that forget about your plans and life, son, uh, because you know life's is as as you know famously Dylan said, "Life's what happens uh, while you're busy making plans." Yeah. You know, um, but of course, you know that was a that was a lesson that was that was served very cold and very heavy to a very young young guy. You know. Um so yeah dealing with that moving forward what do you do you kind of go well do I want to move to the UK do I want to carry on and actually we did make some more music as pod but we did it in that way of traveling back and forth Um but you know at that point also keeping me in Dublin you know I had a girlfriend that I was very much in love with and you know I need I, you know the support I got from her was very I don't know I needed that at that time you know mm-hmm. after the uh the disappointment of pod so you know we were very tight and we were in love and so dublin was my home i loved it um and and dublin was vibrant, um and it didn't take long uh for me to realign and start kind of playing drums i, I was sought after to a degree right so i had people looking for me to play drums for their projects and their acts and different things so i started doing that um I played Gal for a while. Um I toured with him around Ireland for about a year. Um which was fun, very different from Power Dreams. Um met some really good dudes in that band. Um and um and I you know I, I stuck around and and I, I did some really cool stuff and then I joined up with uh, my good friend and Power James guitarist, Robbie Callen, uh, rest his soul. Um, and uh, Robbie uh, had a thing going on with a musical uh, project with a friend, uh, Vinnie, Vinnie Ryan. And uh, it was a band called Crush. Um, and, um, you know, we started playing with them and uh, touring Ireland and Europe and came to the States quite a few times. Um And we were going to sign to uh, Island Records, actually. Uh, This was in 1999. Uh, We'd been courted by Island Records for quite some time. And uh, Island came over uh, with a bunch of their staff. And this was the big one. They were going to either sign the band or not. So we had a big showcase, big deal. And they declined on... um, they declined to sign, uh, the band and, uh, I was like, Oh geez. Okay. Um, so at that time, uh, I was, uh, dating an American girl that I had met in Dublin. And, um, actually I, she was from Arizona. She was from Tempe, Arizona and, uh, we were dating and I had come out to Arizona with her, um, the previous christmas christmas uh, y2k that whole thing actually i was in Mexico on a beach for y2k uh but um yeah so i visited arizona with her loved it it was a, a winter time so it was gorgeous the weather was like summer in ireland you know uh, well actually it wasn't it wasn't raining uh <laughs> but uh, but i did um i did love it and then we went back to ireland and um and all that stuff happened you know, ireland declined. Ireland so she's like, Oh, I'm thinking I'm getting homesick. I'm going to go back to America. Do you want to come with me? I'd love for you to come with me. And I'm like, Ooh, that's a big one. Um, and, um, I said, yes. And told the lads I was leaving the band. They wanted to beat my ass. Um, and, uh, I packed my bag, said goodbye. Everybody thought I was a lunatic and off. I, off I headed. Uh, and, uh, that was June, um, June twentieth, uh, twenty or two thousand, um, and I arrived in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I got off the plane in the dead of summer, and it was, it was a whole new hell. <laughs> when, that, when that plane door opened, I had no idea what I'd let myself in for. It was so hot um but anyway that was it the doors of hell opened and here I am um <laughs> but it was uh it was incredible um and here I am I'm still here 23 years later I absolutely love Arizona it's an incredible place I wouldn't have stayed the summers are rough they can really kick your ass and in fact this summer that we're currently still in believe it or not towards the end of October it was like 100- 104 degrees yesterday um It's really been an extended summer. It's one of the worst I've experienced here in terms of uh, longevity and just consistency in triple digit days. Um, So it's been a very rough summer, but uh, not to dwell on that. Um, We are now entering into our blissful period uh, for the next six months where weather is just incredible. And um, so I'm so excited, but, uh, but it's beautiful. It's such a beautiful place. I love it. So I arrived here, got off the plane. What am I doing? What What's going on? Uh, what is going to happen? And I just jumped into, I think I was here a couple of days, literally. I was here two or three days. Somebody had given me a phone number in Dublin. That I had met somebody in Texas at the South Southwest. give this guy a call. So I call this guy. And before I know it, like two days later, I'm in a rehearsal studio with, it, with a band and, um, and that was a young artist called Emily ion who had a record deal. And um that was it. You know, I met a couple of musicians and before now I'm in two bands and blah 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 blah, blah you know, and uh, and I, you know, I mean music is that. It is the great, you know, connector. It's incredible, like it really is the most incredible entity like ever in that regard. If you play music and you move to Phoenix, Arizona from Dublin, before you know it, you'd have loads of friends and you'd be playing in bands and having a great time. You could put me in, uh, you know, the Congo in Africa. And I'm sure the same thing would happen in a very different kind of way. But music and being Irish are two very powerful things when you're let loose in the world, you know. Um, and I found that that, that was a, a great gift. The combination of those two things in this great country uh people are very drawn to you for both of those things. Um so I was blessed in that regard because I really hit the ground running in the regard in regards that I had like all this history of music. I have a wonderful story. I've done a lot. I'm Irish, which doesn't hurt. And 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 here we go, you know. So that was the beginning of my kind of and how I got here, essentially speaking, you know. So yeah so you know with my girlfriend at the time, we subsequently married um and um and here we are in um Arizona together a young married couple and um you know, not not long after moving here um a couple of months i got i got you know I got a phone call from my brother Craig to inform me that our mom uh, was not well. Uh, and I flew home and my mom passed about six weeks later. Um, so that was, um, that was huge. Um, that was a very uh, difficult time. So I went back to Dublin and uh, stayed for a couple of weeks after. And I helped out with what I could. And, and then I came back and, um and when I came back is when we got married a little bit after, you know. Um, so, you know, things changed. Like I, I, that particular period of my life was very uh, significant with a lot of changes. I left my home country. I got married. My mom passed. I mean, it was there was a lot of change, you know. Um, and uh, I was playing music. I was recording, putting out music with various artists as a drummer, you know. And at the same time, I had, I'd always been interested in synthesizers. And and even before I'd left Ireland, I had been working on electronic music. Um, I had like a, a little small MIDI studio uh, in Ireland, very basic at the time. This is like, you know, late nineties kind of stuff with Cubase and trying to make this stuff work was part of the art. Um, but I was very interested in and I'd been playing around with music and tinkering around. So when I moved here, uh, I got a guitar. I got a, an acoustic guitar, a left-handed one because I'm left-handed. And I'd always try to play right-handed guitars, which was ridiculous. Um, I got a synthesizer, a couple of different things. And uh, and, and I just work on music myself, you know, um, while playing music as well. I, I joined... Um, Another band I joined, like a a street punk band uh, that played kind of Rancid, you know, the band Rancid, kind of stuff, <laughs> really, like, gutter punk, street punk, you know? And I was playing drums for those guys, and they were cool. They were so punked out, these guys. They were rad, rad dudes. And uh, I played with them for a little while. We made a record. I actually made an album. And um, so I was very much immersed in the punk scene here um and met a lot of cool people and made a lot of lifelong friends uh, in that scene um so from that scene from the punk scene then i kind of took some time out Uh, and this is a few years later i took some time out and i'd been playing guitar a lot and i'd been writing a lot trying to write and then i uh I bumped into a friend of mine I had met with the punk scene, a guy called Jason Devore, who was a singer for uh, an Arizona uh, ska punk band called Authority Zero, and we used to rehearse in the same building, and uh, we became friendly because they uh, they were across the hallway, and Jason has Irish heritage, very much an Irish kind of guy from his background, and we became good friends, and uh, a few years later. I bumped into Jason and he said, hey, I'd love to do some music and start, uh, start a project, uh, sort of Irish punk thing. Would you be interested? So we got together and uh, we wrote a bunch of songs um, and they were fun drinking songs. And uh, then we put a little band together locally and we did some shows. They were fun. People were showing up in their droves because Jason's band is quite a big band. So he just put the word out. So our first show was like 600 people, you know? Uh, And we only did a handful of shows as the Bollocks, but we put that record out and then we imploded too much whiskey. Um, And, and that record went on then to um, kind of, kind of a life of its own. Like it's, it's kind of a little bit of a cult classic within the Celtic uh, punk rock, uh, Celtic rock, kind of American kind of, world you know um and there's a really good fan base for that band that exists and whatnot from time to time jason and i've gotten together and written some stuff and added to the catalog and perhaps we'll do some shows and touring because there's a demand for that band to get out there and tour if we want you know but we never have we haven't really touched it in over 10 years but
0: so i did that
2: and that was a lot of fun and uh when that ended i um I had come across this young band. I was I was at another show and I and I went to pay my bar tab and I went into the, into the venue and this band had started and they were incredible. I was like, oh my God, who is this? And they were just young kids locally, a band called Sister Cities. And I sat down, it was like 10 people in the room. And I sat down and I watched their gig. I put my drink on. I was supposed to go back outside, but I completely like, just was like, Poof. you know when that happens? Mm. It still happens straight when it happens. And I was just like, the world disappeared, I swear to God, for 30 minutes. And I just sat there in awe of this band. And I went up to them afterwards, and I was like, oh, God, you guys are incredible. And and I think they'd heard of my Celtic band. They're like, oh, we look blah, blah, blah. So I arranged a meeting with them uh, a couple of days later. And I'm like, right, we got to try and help you guys do something. So I got involved with those guys on a managerial level, trying to kind of guide them a little bit. Purely out of the fact that I thought they were incredible. I was no other reason just like people have to hear this band um so I worked with them and then uh, subsequently, their drummer drummer left and they're like oh we're gonna do some shows we play some drums I'm like "Really?" <laughs> um so I did I played drums with them for a while it was fun and they recorded with them and um, oh it did wonders for my drumming though you know because it was different and and I love that I love putting myself into a different kind of drumming wise and challenging myself to not use my snare drum (laughs) Um, but uh, you know so I did uh, work with those guys for a bit and it was a lot of fun and again a lot of attention on this but a lot of attention was building a lot of industry interest and then our keyboard player Ana uh, was Mexican and she lived in Mexico but was travelling back and forth and uh, it became a hassle for her so she quit and then the band just another, another story just, you know, like, oh, my God, it's awful, but it happens. Um, and then the singer from that band. Uh, reached out to me about about a year after or so, well, maybe not a year after, I uh, he said, hey, I'd like to work with you on some stuff. Are you interested? I'm like, yeah, of course. He's great vocalist, good writer. So we got together, we start writing and working together. And we turned that project into a project called The Holy Coast. Uh, and the Holy Coast recorded a bunch of uh, music and uh, did some live shows locally. We were bubbling and building. Signed a record deal with a local indie label. Uh, I signed us to a, a music licensing deal with a Los Angeles-based uh, company. And, uh, and then we started to get tons of placements on TV shows. I think in total we've got about 15 or 16 placements on U.S. TV, big, big, big network TV shows, MTV shows, all yeah. sorts of stuff. Um, but that band, the singer just decided he didn't want to be in a band anymore. As everything was happening, decided he didn't want to be in a band. Uh, and he quit. Right as it was going off. So I was like, OK, life is just you just don't know what's going to happen or you cannot plan, like I said, life's what happens when you're busy making plans and all the rest of it. And you know, when that happens, I'm not gonna lie, I was quite I was quite disillusioned, you know, because every time I manage to take something close to it, you know, becoming something, it seems to implode or something doesn't quite work out. Like, and that can be very disillusioning, you know, um, year after year, or project after project. And I mean, not to say that these projects don't have success. They all have. But they seem to just kind of reach a certain point, And then it's like, we're not going to take you any further here, okay? Yeah. This is where the train stops or whatever. It's interesting. Yeah. And I believe firmly that, that that's for a reason. I don't think there's an agenda against... Me in any way, shape or form, it's all be- it's a, the beautiful symmetry of the universe's message and the guidance and I'm okay with that yeah. um but i I definitely um was disappointed at that one because I saw so much potential from this band like yeah. really really was I really had a vision for like a certain aspect and particularly live because we were an electronic band. You know, for me live, I had an auxiliary drum setup. I had like drum pads, I had synths. So it was a very different kind of approach for me live. I really liked that. Um but it wasn't to be. Um so after that then I started to work on other music with, with some friends and again was getting lots of uh placements with with projects and getting stuff on tv and so i was moving more into that kind of world of creating music purposely uh, for submissions to you know we're not real you know oh yeah this is going to be an act i'm going to tour or whatever but just making and writing and submitting for that purpose and it was good and it was working Uh, and then right around that time i decided that i wanted to make a record for myself so i started working on a record a dark wave record Kind of, a lot of the music I like is from a certain era, um, and not to pigeonhole it like that. But, but there is a real interest for me for, you know, dark wave. Uh, I love dark wave, post punk stuff. You know, mm. uh, so I started this thing myself. I didn't know what it was going to be. So I made a record under the, under the moniker of uh, Snake Heart Society, um, and I brought in a friend of mine to mix it. I put it put it out uh, with the intention of touring that record, um, but some other stuff was going on in my life. I was very busy with my business because I, you know, work with uh, a children's clothing line that I was kind of working on as well. So I was being pulled a lot in that direction. So I had to kind of focus on that, which is perfectly fine. And then COVID hit. So a lot of things just changed really musically and stuff in terms of plans and different things. So, so um, you know, COVID hit and then I was very much immersed in my work with my business. So music was kind of, you know, on the back burner and not back burner, but it wasn't my main focus. Um, and that's the way I had been for 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 quite a time um, over the past couple of years as we re-entered into normal after the couple of years of COVID. Um, so really only in the past, you know, when when COVID kind of started to, you know, go away, um, I, had, I had been writing a lot of music over COVID at home uh, in my own small studio that I have. Um, and then I was like, I need to find some vocalists that I want to work with that I can... Be more background on this and kind of write and kind of help promote and use my knowledge to kind of help propel so i i ended up meeting uh this girl bex uh rebecca Mertos goes by bex but she's um from arizona but she's based in los angeles but she was at the time when i met her uh, via friend I, I met her online via friends um and um she was um looking to get involved in something musically too. So so her and I um, started to work on a project. It's called Bex, B-E-X-X. So we've put a couple of singles out. She is actually an NYC film student uh, graduate and actually is uh, a film school lecturer in Los Angeles. So she's making all these really great videos. We have like four videos that are currently in production right now. Uh, for our music so we have a stack of music that we've recorded this year Um, so we're kind of filtering through that in various stages so we have a bunch of singles that are going to come out with videos over the course of the next 12 months so we've been kind of stacking that stuff it's really fun Um, uh, we work really well together Uh, we write really well together and some of the music that we've done recently is really really great I'm really proud of it it sounds amazing it's big uh, and some of it's just fun uh, yeah so so I've really enjoyed working with her it's been a really nice process and, and how we've been working has been real nice kind of I work on the basis of what we're doing well, we'll write actually acoustic guitar we'll get together we'll write and then I'll demo it and then we'll take it to my friend's bigger professional studio and we'll, we'll, we'll work it there you know so we have a nice process with that so yeah we've a bunch of stuff in the works and then recently i have revisited snake heart society uh because it kind of didn't really kind of pop off because it fizzled out because of covid and and other things so so i thought like it would be good to revisit so i just recently put out a single and and with snake heart society it's predominantly myself um with you know somebody else i don't mix the records um but i do record them and play everything on them and produce them and all that but i do have somebody else mix them you know so that's what this latest one is it just came out last friday um and i'm really excited about this one because it's got it's got a real cinematic feel for me and i like that because i like that world and i want to be in more in that world uh soundscape wise um So, yeah, I'm kind of leaning into that more
0: as we move forward.
2: So, yeah, working with other artists is something that's very appealing to me
0: at this time. We're going to play out with that new single from Snake Heart Society very shortly. But just one last question, right? Probably more than coming up on 35 years, if not more than 35 years since you first started playing drums in your mom's garden shed with your brother. uh, Any amount of record deals, any amount of different bands and projects. Can you ever see a time when you don't make new music, Keith? um
2: to be honest with you i don't you know um and i don't honestly make music for anybody other than myself and that's the truth because it's not like i have ever really uh approached music in any regard other other than self kind of satis- satisfaction you know and i know it sounds boring when people start talking about how their music is therapy and blah, blah blah but it really is you know i i um i don't know anything else i don't know i mean music is soothing for me you know it's a it's a it's a self-soother it like ticks so many boxes um but just the sheer act of creation is, is something that has has always been around my, uh, my world, you know? So no, I don't ever want to stop creating music until, until it's not an option really, you know? I mean, I look at, I look at the acts, the monster acts that still exist, like, you know, obviously you 2 with, you know, still, still in the, still one of the biggest acts in the world, whether we like him or not. Um, And, you know, of course, you know, the Rolling Stones. I mean, these are extreme cases, of course. Right. But I don't think that Mick Jagger is getting up in the morning and saying, you know, I want to make music so I can impress everybody. I'm sure. You know, that the joy of creation is still at the at the center of Mick Jagger's world, you know, and Keith Richards. And these guys are 80 years of age, right? So I don't I, I don't know. I mean, there's lifers, right? And then there's no. I mean, I know guys in bands that no longer do that, you know? They got over it or whatever. I don't know what that is. I don't understand that mentality of stopping. It, you know, I'm not. I don't have like a thousand people at my door looking for new music right now, going quick, quick, we need your music. It's not like that. So I don't make it for that reason. You know what I mean? But I, I don't understand how, I understand life throws situations at people and they have to go, look, I can't do that anymore. I've got to focus on my family. I have, and I get that. I totally do. But I I, I would, I would, I don't know what I'd do if I had to do that. You know, I don't know. I really don't like, I feel blessed. And that's success in music. The fact that I'm still playing it and I'm still making records and releasing them, enjoying them and doing it. That's success, right? That is anything after that is
1: like whatever.
2: I mean, success is knowing that at this stage in my life, 35 plus years in, that I can still get the same excitement from it that I did back then. And I mean that. I really do. I'm not jaded on music, disappointed from time to time, but not jaded. Because my relationship with music has grown over 35 years. It doesn't stay the same. It changes. And, you know, you come back to the sweet spots and, you know, all of that. So, no, I would never, ever consider I've had enough. I don't know what that means. Um, Had enough of what? You know what I mean? I mean, how can you ever get enough of something that you love, you know?
0: Long may it continue, Keith. Thanks so much for talking to me.
2: Thanks, Phil. Appreciate it. Great catch up.
0: There you go. That was indeed the wonderful Keith Walker joining me all the way from Arizona where he's been living for many, many years now. Uh, A fantastically talented musician and just a great bloke all around. And God almighty, I can't wait to get back to the West Coast of America and see if I can catch up with him in person at some point because as you can tell from the length of that conversation there's still an awful lot that we have to talk about. Let us play out, ladies and gentlemen, with uh, a tune from Snake Heart Society. His latest single, it's called Nobody Knows. We're going to play a little bit of that now. Please go ahead, subscribe, on YouTube and on uh, Spotify anywhere you find Snake Heart Society please pick them up you might find them on Bandcamp you can probably buy it on iTunes or Apple Music or whatever it's called these days so uh, support your local artists support your local Irish artists boys and girls because uh, that's uh, what they need 70 million of us around the globe surely we can throw in a few bob and uh, keep artists like him on podcasts like this one going there will be another podcast coming up next week I shall say nothing about it because we've been here too long already hope you enjoyed it back again next week with another episode of the Global gale Podcast take care of yourselves, take care of one another and I shall talk to you then, good luck
1: I want you to love me for who I am I want you to need me untie my hands don't want you to